Hello, greetings, thank you for joining us, and thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Paul wrote to the Colossians the following, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we see from the beginning that Paul and Timothy are writing to the Christians of Colossae. Now, Colossae is a city in the Roman province of Asia, in the Lycus Valley. It's an originally a Phrygian city. It's in today's modern Turkey. It was previously a very rich and powerful city, but by the time Paul writes to it, it's very much diminished from that time. In around the year 64, it was destroyed by an earthquake, and that's probably why it's not mentioned in Revelation. Paul himself did not go to Colossae. As we noted in verse 7 and 8, we learned that there's a man named Epaphras. He's the one who preached the gospel there, and he has reported to Paul. And we also see him in chapter 4 and verse 12. Colossae is most also likely the home of Philemon, Archippus, and Onesimus, who are mentioned in Colossians 4, 9, and 17. And based on Philemon 1, 1 and 2, and 23, the church in Colossae might well have met in Philemon's house. Now, throughout the letter, Paul presumes a basic understanding of the gospel, and he understands that Colossians are trying to be faithful Christians. And it's important to keep in mind as we uh, get into the type of thing he has to say to them. Now, a lot of scholars have challenged whether Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians or not. 
Many think it's style and substance, especially the household code in chapter uh, 3 and 4 about uh, the conduct of, of people. Uh, probably uh, may indicate a later date by a disciple of Paul in their estimation. The thing is, all literary critical analyses could make a similar case about almost any other letter. Interestingly, Paul tends to use the same number of new words or unique words uh, across different letters, just, of course, different ones. Stylistically, Colossians is very close to Ephesians and Philemon, and it's most likely written around the same time by the same people. The best explanation is that Paul actually is writing to Asian cities here and using Asi Asiatic styles of rhetoric. Since he's writing to Christians in Asia, he's not going to sound like uh, how he would sound writing to the Christians of Rome or Corinth or, or Jerusalem, uh, different Christians who have a different uh, expectation of style, perhaps. And maybe, in fact, it's Timothy who's actually doing the writing of the letter, uh, making Paul's amanuensis. Um, and as a Phrygian, uh, Timothy may write in a more Asiatic style. We know he's a Phrygian based on his time in Acts 16, 1 through 5, uh, being from uh, Lystra. Paul is in prison in Colossians 4 and verse 3. And so Colossians is one of the prison letters written either from Caesarea or Rome, somewhere between 59 and 62, according to the narrative in Acts 23 through 28, and also therefore one of his later letters, uh, where there's greater time for theological reflection and maturity. And so, Paul begins this letter to the Colossians with a standard greeting, and then works to ingratiate himself with the Colossians, because he gives thanks for them, and he offers a prayer that's going to define the exhortation that he's going to provide for them. Now, verses 3 through 8 is one long sentence in Greek. And Paul gives thanks to God, he prays for them, he's heard of their faith and their love for Christians, and he knows their faith and love is on account of the hope that's laid up in heaven for them. They've heard of this hope uh, based on the proclamation of the gospel that spread and has borne fruit and increased throughout the world and also with the Colossians. Uh, and they've learned the grace of God and the gospel from Epaphras that Paul has commended as a faithful worker. And that indicated that the Epaphras has commended the Christians of Colossae to Paul himself. From this, we see that faith and love are rooted in the hope generated by hearing, acceptance, and growth in the message of the gospel, the word of truth, the grace of God, Jesus' life, death, and hope of resurrection. In verse 6, talking about the whole world is cosmos. Uh, as we're going to see, there might be some celestial elements of cosmos, kind of like the way we use it, but uh, here, most likely referring to the known world. And that's an attestation of how the gospel is spread, just as Jesus had promised in Acts 1 and verse 8. And so what he's trying to do here is saying, yes, he, he recognizes the Colossian Christians have heard the gospel, they've learned of it faithfully, and they've grown in it since they've heard it. They've had love in the Spirit. And when it comes in the Spirit, that's more locative than agency. It's more the, the location of that love, the place of that love, rather than the means of that love. And he's establishing that Christian unity and relationship are rooted in the Spirit. And that's something we also see in Galatians 5. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13, that we're baptized in one spirit, and Ephesians 4.3, that we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So those are all of the exhortations he has. Then in beginning in verse 9, he continues with the prayer. And actually, the sentence begins in verse 9, goes all the way through to verse 17. But even within that sentence, there's a rhetorical shift um, we're going to note the first kind of shift at the end of verse 12. There's also a shift in verse 14. 
you can also just make the shift at 14 however you want to look at it but the point in the section uh, 9 through 12 at least uh, is that Paul is praying that the Colossian Christians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will with spiritual wisdom and understanding that they may walk worthy of the Lord what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord to bear fruit in every good work to increase the knowledge of God to be strengthened by God with all power, to manifest endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to God. There's a very similar theme here with Ephesians, where Paul will also pray in a similar way that they may walk worthily of the gospel in Ephesians 1 and in in chapter 3. And we do well to note the progression that's in this prayer. Christians are to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding, so they may walk worthily. So the knowledge that Paul has in mind here is not just acquiring facts in verses 9 and 10, that this knowledge of God's will uh, with spiritualism and understanding will lead them to walk worthily. In verse 11, that they should be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might because they don't have the strength in and of themselves to accomplish it. Um, And it's God's strength that proves necessary to maintain that endurance and patience with joy. And that's the great value of that power. This is a great prayer, a prayer we should remember, a prayer that we should pray for one another, that the people of God would uh, gain knowledge of God and his will to uh, fill with wisdom and understanding, to walk worthily of what God would have us to do. Beginning in the middle of verse 12, Paul has said, giving thanks to the Father. That was the, the last section there of the things that you do to walk worthily. Well, why do you give thanks to the Father? That's what he does in verse end of verse 12 to 14, that God has made us sufficient to partake of the inheritance of holy people in light. He's delivered us from the power of evil. He's transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus, the Son of his love. And in Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Uh, sufficient is Greek hikonosanti, normally translated to qualify here in English standard, to make meat or to supply what is lacking, to make what is sufficient. God has made us sufficient uh, in Jesus. Um, The tense in verse 13 is very important. That God, past tense, has delivered us from the demand of darkness, transferred us past tense into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul envisioned the Colossian Christians are already in the kingdom of Jesus. And thus, by necessity, Paul sees that the kingdom is an existing reality in his own day. And this, in short, is a compelling reminder, as in Ephesians 2, and as we're going to see also at other points later in the text, of how our deliverance is secured not by our own efforts, but through God's great power and love manifest in Jesus' death on the cross. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to emphasize here. Now, beginning in verse 15 and continuing through the rest of the section to verse 23, Paul has spoken of Jesus, and now he's going to extol the greatness of Christ. And he's literally laying the groundwork for the core of his argument that's going to come in in the second chapter. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, in whom and for whom all things were created, and all things consist, in verses 15 through 18. And that image there is Greek icon. And Jesus is the embodiment of the character of God. And so if God could be viewed, it's in Jesus. That's why Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever has seen uh, me has seen the Father in John 14, 5 through 9. That he is the exact imprint of the divine nature in Hebrews 1, 3. Literally in Greek, the character, the character uh, of God embodied. So it's interesting. Um, God commanded no graven image be made of him. Uh, that he's the invisible God. 
as Paul says. But God has made an image of himself in Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. We cannot see the Father in John 1.18, but we see God in Jesus. Now, firstborn of all creation has caused some consternation historically. It's Greek prototokos. Uh, prototokos can mean the firstborn in terms of generation, but also can just mean preeminent in quality or relationship. Uh, early Christians insisted against Arius and others who would try to say, well, look, he's created if he's the firstborn of all creation. But, ah, uh, he doesn't say he's first of the creation. He was begotten, not made. And in Colossians 1, verse 17, Paul will go on to say that he is before all things. So he's before all created things. And that's what Paul goes on to do. He explains how Jesus is the firstborn of the all creation. He has a preeminence in the creation because all things are made in him, through him, and unto him. Uh, in this description, uh, Paul evokes what's said about wisdom in Proverbs 8.22. And this is really aligned with Jesus' the word in John 1, uh, 1 through 14, the means by which God created all things in Genesis 1, Psalm 33. So that idea of John's coming out of left field there in John 1 with the idea of Jesus the word is not true. Uh, Paul is, is receiving revelation of the same thing. It puts it in different words, but the same core essential idea in the end, that everything is made for and in Jesus, in the word, by the word. Uh, it all works together. Paul's going further, because it's not just that the creation is made through the word, but it's also for him. And it's also establishing how and why Jesus would be given all authority over all the forces and beings in the creation. And the assumption goes on to it, by extension, there's nothing that can be added to him. And so we have here thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. They may include earthly authorities, but they also have reference to spiritual beings in the heavenly places. And this is something we can see attested to us a lot of extra-biblical literature uh, that goes along with that idea. Second Maccabees, 1st Enoch, Testament of Levi, 2nd Enoch. Uh, we have some references about that. Uh, Paul talks a lot about the heavenly things in Ephesians. And he's going to bring up the powers of principalities later in Colossians as well. And all things consist in Jesus. That's an important point. Now, Colossians 1, 5 through 2, 10 leave no doubt about Paul's view of Jesus as divine. He's very, very much puts Jesus as a level as God. And Jesus is being seen as a ground on which all things can stand. And this is important because what he's trying to point is, if all things consist in him, that means they exist in him. Their continued existence is only allowed or provided for because he continually wills it. Something we also see in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, that he, he sustains both the world by his power. Uh, this is not deism, where God just kind of winds the clock and lets it go. Uh, this is a constant interaction, a constant renewal, constant willing to continue to exist. And it shows creation cannot be fully isolated from its creator. It stands within God and Christ, and therefore Jesus is not an aberration in it. Uh, that's another important thing. Jesus and what happened is not an aberration. This is the culmination of all God has planned. In verse 18, he goes on to say that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's given preeminence in all things. So here Paul identifies Jesus as the head of the body, which is the church, as in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And there is an explicit association between the church and the body here, and it's that Jesus rules and directs it. The firstborn of the dead is a reference to the resurrection. It indicates primacy, but also expectation. If there's a firstborn, there will be later born of the dead. Revelation 1, 5 
uh, makes the same point. Pre in preeminence uh, that he will get is seen in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow uh, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verses 19 through 20, it's God's good pleasure to have the fullness dwell in Jesus, that he reconciles all things to himself through the blood of Jesus' cross, both earthly and heavenly. Now, fullness of the Greek pleroma. We're going to see it again in Colossians. In later times, we have a lot of people called the Gnostics later who will speculate intensively that there's all of these aeons or divine beings inhabiting the pleroma. They want to contrast the pleroma with evil material creation. But Paul dispenses all that kind of speculation from beginning, from the beginning by saying, no, the pleroma is in Jesus, not the other way around. The fullness is in Jesus. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul introduces a cosmic dimension of reconciliation. He didn't just say that through Jesus' death on the cross, God is reconciling all earthly things. No, all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. So Jesus' sacrifice reconciles spiritual beings to God as well. And in this way, we can appreciate how in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Greek cosmos. For God so the cosmos, and we can appreciate cosmos may mean more than just the earth, uh, because what Jesus accomplished in our world in the first century in Judea didn't just have implications for the world, but for the whole creation. Now, reconciliation is secured by peace, which is the killing of hostility in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Now, as with all of God's purposes, it would be ideal if it would be universal, that all spiritual beings and creatures would be reconciled to God, but God does not coel or coerce. So that's why beings and creatures who resist his purposes will be called into judgment and are allowed to do that, but the ground has been made already. Uh, Jesus has died, which allows all things to be reconciled in him. And we, know, we don't have to see any contradiction there. Uh, the capability is established, and now it's the free will decision uh, of all creatures has to be uh, brought into account. Now, Paul then takes that cosmic truth of the glorious Christ, and he then applies it to the Colossian situation in verses 21 and through 23. That the Colossian Christians, they were once alienated and enemies in mind, but Jesus has now reconciled them through his flesh in his death to be presented as holy and blameless and beyond reproach before him. As long as they continued grounded and steadfast in their faith, and they're not moved from the hope of the gospel they heard, which is now preached in all creation under heaven, and Paul is a minister of that gospel. There's a strong parallel here between Ephesians 2, Ephesians 5, and this. In both places, Paul sets forth the story of salvation for Christians, emphasizes God's work in reconciliation despite man's kind's transgression, and he puts cleansing and holiness in Christ. But here in Colossians, he adds the importance of being grounded in faith and not moved from the gospel of hope. And the fact that he adds that here really is going to be important for us. Paul doesn't say the Colossian Christians have actually moved away from that hope. Very important to note that. He's not writing the same way he wrote to the Galatians. This is not an imminent problem. He is warning them against doing so. And based on potential or real sources of false doctrine and philosophy that may persuade them to do so. Interesting that he emphasizes on flesh here, that he actually said the flesh of body of flesh by his death, making it clear that Jesus' redemption is not disembodied. It's not dochetic. It doesn't just seem to be human. It was actually human. 
It's a really a, a preeminent conclusion to everything that's said. Because if Jesus is the preeminent one, if all things exist in and through him, then nothing can be added to him or taken away from him. And that's why Christians must be rooted in him and nowhere else. And that proviso reinforces the need for continued faithless relationship. Paul establishes that the redemption and cleansing the Colossians received was from God in Christ. But it's only going to be effective if they maintain their hope and their faith, and lost if they turn away from it. And his conclusion is not irrelevant. The message they have heard is proclaimed everywhere else. It's the same message. It's not geographically or culturally limited in his proclamation. Paul can speak of it because he's been made a minister or a diakonos of it. And so this is how Paul has begun his letter to the Colossians. He commends them for their uh, in prayer, encourages their growth and faithfulness, and he glorifies God in Christ. Now, we are in, supposed to be struck by the greatness and majesty of Jesus the Christ. That's Paul's point in writing that whole um, Christ hymn is what many perhaps think it is, uh, or maybe it is his own writing, uh, something that they can really uh, be astonished by. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of creation, unto whom and in whom all things were created and consist. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn of the dead. Colossians 1, 15-19. And we need to let that point sink in. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we cannot find an image of God anywhere else that would be clear or superior. We can't find anything that would add to it or enhance it in any meaningful way. So if all things exist by, through, and for Jesus, and all things are subject to him, then we do well to subject ourselves to him in all things. If we want to arise from the dead, we must follow the firstborn of the dead. All of these conclusions are Paul's point precisely. They represent the often malign but very justifiable conceit of Christianity that there's nowhere else to go. A lot of people hate that. Why do you Christians think you have a monopoly on the truth? Do you think you're better than other people? It's not that the Christians think they're better than other people. But if Jesus is the image of God, and the one for whom all things exist and who has all power, why would we look anywhere else? What could we add to Jesus from Eastern pagan or other forms of spirituality? What could be added to Jesus from the philosophies of the world? When you have seen the image God made of himself, what other image could be anywhere near as compelling? And it's not only this, but Jesus is Lord over all, and in him God is reconciling all things, even in the heavenly places, to himself. So Jesus' death and resurrection has a cosmic significance. It happened on earth in the middle of the first century, a very compelling and powerful thing that we are now invited to participate in the cosmic work that God has established for us in Jesus and his kingdom. And we should be awestruck at that, humbled by that, but not paralyzed by that. Very important contrast there. Uh, we shouldn't approach the work flippantly. We shouldn't uh, approach it casually because it is a magnificent work. It is a glorious work. But we shouldn't be so awed at what God has done for us that we're paralyzed and find ourselves unable to do anything. No, we are still supposed to do the work. And this kind of passage goes a long way in encouraging us to do so. It's interesting to note how Paul prays in, in verses 9 through 12. And it's a legitimate, honest prayer. I don't want to think of it otherwise. But it's also an exhortation in its own way. It's consistent with Ephesians 1, 15 through 20. 
What does Paul want for the Colossian Christians? He wants them to be filled with knowledge according to spiritual wisdom and understanding that they may walk worthily of the Lord. Now, spiritual wisdom and understanding are not according to the ways of the world, but come from the Spirit, manifesting the wisdom that comes from above. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11-15, James 3, 13-18, that heavenly wisdom, the, the, not with a natural man perceived, with the, pers the spiritual person uh, who has understanding from the Spirit can receive. Walking worthily demands bearing fruit in good works, increasing the knowledge of God, heart as well as head, being strengthened with God's power to endure and be patient in joy and giving thanks to God. And so we must have knowledge according to spiritual wisdom and understanding to walk worthy of the Lord. And, but we must walk worthily, working in faith and growing in that knowledge of God and relying on His strength to endure and manifest true joy. And reliance and trust in God in Christ is underscored. It's not going to happen or work by our feeble strength alone. So, you can do a lot worse than this passage. Talk about what does it mean to become a Christian to be a Christian and live as a Christian? Well, you need to... Uh, be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritualism understanding to walk worthily uh, of the Lord, pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. To be strengthened with His power, in to uh, endure and be patient with joy and giving thanks to God. You could do a lot worse than that. And that's Paul's entire point. Since he's never seen them in the flesh, he's trying to guide them and give them the path that they should be following. Now, at the end of this section, in verses 19 through 21, you could do a lot worse uh, for a summary of the gospel than that section. We were alienated in sin. God in Christ reconciled us through his flesh and its death. We are holy and without blemish before him, and we must continue in the faith and not waver in our hope of the gospel. Now, far too long, Christians have experienced a lot of whiplash in their faith regarding the condition of their salvation. Uh, you got people who are in the one saved, always saved camp. you got people in the if saved, barely saved camp. And so on the one hand, you lost. if we can lose our salvation, how can anyone have any security in it? And that kind of leads people to one saved, always saved. Uh, but if we cannot lose salvation, then how is God not capricious? And why are there so many exhortations towards certain forms of conduct? Which means run to the if saved, barely saved side. But Paul shows the way in Colossians 1. Our holiness and the way we've been made blameless is not because of us but because of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus and his death and we stand before him because of that but if we continue in the faith and not wavering in the hope of the gospel and so in an ironic way it is absolutely true that what is necessary to obtain salvation is the very thing necessary to maintain it and that's faith we can have confidence in our salvation and standing before God if we continue in faith and do not waver in our hope in the gospel now, we may go through difficult days. We might even go through difficult periods. But as long as we trust in God and Christ and don't try to enhance, quote-unquote, our faith with what are really idols or turn away and reject Jesus, God and Jesus is going to do everything he can to strengthen us and save us. And we have to have our trust that God is willing to do everything he can to strengthen us and save us. But anyone who does not really trust in God, but trusts in the ways of this world, the philosophies of men, the spiritualities of the cosmic forces of darkness, have abandoned the hope of the gospel, and thus will have no share in it. And that is why it's important for us to understand the summer of the gospel. Yes, we were once alienated and hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, but God has reconciled us in the flesh of Jesus. To present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So let us trust in that glorious Christ. Let's not try to add to him or take away from him. Let us root and establish ourselves in him and not waver in our hope in the gospel. We're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've benefited by our conversation here in Colossians. If you've got some questions about some of the things we talked about, um, if you would like to discuss any other issue, if you have a prayer request, please contact us. Please reach out. We can find us at VenturesToChrist.org. We're also on social media. Uh, if you like, I can be of service, please reach me at my website, deverbovitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. And please share uh, this message to other people on social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.